Welcome to Building a Greener Idaho, your source for insightful conversations with diverse voices at the intersection of people, profit, and planet. Hi, everybody. I am John Fremuth, the Executive Director of the Andrus Center. Now, to introduce Gary, I'll have Murray Feldman come up. Thank you, John. Hello, everyone. Uh, it is truly my pleasure tonight to welcome back to Idaho and welcome here to Boise State Dr. Gary Macklis, who is the University Professor of Environmental Sustainability at Clemson University. From 2009 to 2017, Gary served as the first scientist appointed by the science advisor to the director of the National Park Service. I think Gary may tell you that he may be the only person ever appointed to that position. Uh, before that, as we talked about, Gary was a professor at the College of Natural Resources at the University of Idaho. That's where he and I first crossed paths some 36 years ago. Well, since those days up in Moscow, where he was in this windowless cinder block office in the basement of the forestry building, Gary's had quite a journey. Uh, somewhat similar to what President Obama has said about the course of our nation's history, it may not have always been straightforward, but that journey has brought Gary back to Idaho with us today to share his thoughts from his new book, co-written with John Jarvis, on the future of conservation in America, a chart for rough water. The book that Gary's going to share with us today is what he and Director Jarvis call a small book, but one with big aims. And that aim is to provide a guide for how the conservation movement, which they broadly define, can effectively advance its agenda over the near and long term. It's a guide that's well informed by that path that Gary has taken for the past 40 years since he received his doctorate in human ecology from Yale and before that his undergraduate degrees here in the Pacific Northwest from the University of Washington. So here now to share his message about the future of conservation in America, please join me in welcoming Gary Macklis. Thank you, Murray, and thank you, John. Thanks to the Andrus Center. Thanks to Boise State for inviting me and all of us here to have a very important conversation about the future of conservation. And as Murray said, it's a homecoming every time I cross the state lines into Idaho. I spent over three decades in Idaho, raised my children as Idahoans, and learned much of what I have learned from the winter wheat fields of the Palouse the Snake and the Salmon Rivers, the lakes of Pend Oreille and Coeur d'Alene, and the faculty and students of the University of Idaho. How do you express gratitude to a state? Today I want to speak briefly on the future of conservation in America. These thoughts closely follow that in the book released this spring. I want to share greetings from my co-author, John Jarvis, who served as the 18th director of the National Park Service. We speak as one for reasons that will become obvious very quickly. The views presented here do not represent the official views of Clemson University, but are ours alone based on what we both calculated as an astounding 80 years of time spent together on conservation politics. We wrote the future of conservation for several reasons. We wanted to sound the alarm over the current assault by the Trump administration on conservation. 
We wanted to use our lessons learned to describe how this turbulent time for conservation, what we call rough water, is impacting the American landscape and how it may unfold beyond this one administration. We also wrote to provide practical strategies for action. It is not enough to be outraged or to recite a litany of environmental harm being done by the present administration. There are essential and effective strategies that could advance the cause of conservation in America in ways that are bipartisan, respectful of differences, science-informed, forward-looking, and practical. And we wrote to share these strategies and encourage their use. Finally, we wrote to declare our confidence in the resilience of American institutions, in the American conservation movement, and its contribution to the nation. We believe conservation is a patriotic act. So our book charts a path from alarm to action to optimism. And I want to briefly share with you each of those elements and then engage in a hopefully lively conversation with you about them. The immediate assault on conservation is wide-ranging. It includes abandoning the Paris Accord on Climate Change, which every country in the world except the U.S is a partner to now that Syria and North Korea got their act together. Eliminating citizen advisory groups and removing university faculty from other advisory groups because they received funding all the while stacking these groups with industry officials directly paid. Failing to staff the critical position of science advisor to the president for the first time since President Truman. Removing access to scientific data, erasing important websites for citizens to gain information about environmental concerns, attempting to muzzle federal scientists, violating scientific integrity policies, and retaliating against those civil service professionals that resist proposing the elimination of successful conservation collaborations that have engaged industry and environmentalists, such as the Chesapeake Bay and the Great Lake Initiatives, for the reason of not wanting to have examples of conservation working. Rescinding resource management policies that protect national parks and working to reduce the size of national monuments created by both Republican and Democratic administrations. Rolling back regulations that protect citizens and arm them with information, such as eliminating the requirement that fracking operations reveal the chemicals used in the underground pressurization that has demonstrably shown harm. Cutting funding for vital climate change research. Proposing to expand accident-prone off short deep water drilling while at the same time proposing to lower the already low royalty payments by oil companies that are used to support local conservation. Weakening as a prelude to gutting 
the core federal conservation laws such as the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and the Endangered Species Act, all passed under a Republican president. And I will tell you that this little book is probably the only one you'll get that quotes in the same chapter favorably and admirably Richard Nixon, Bob Dylan, and James Baldwin all together. <laughs> And these actions directly harm conservation, and they degrade the protection of the nation's land and waters and the communities and families that depend upon them. And there's more to come. The populist movement, with its resentment of scientific experts, the media, minorities, immigrants, and the federal government will likely extend beyond this current administration. Conservation groups and university scientists and institutions like Boise State University will continue to be included in the collection of resented interests. The politics of personal destruction the viciousness of the alt-right that even now attacks conservatives as well as conservationists, the turning away of the building of resilience into American cities and the countryside, the erosion of American preeminence in science, all will likely continue. In addition, the challenges facing conservation are even more structural and long-term. In the book, we note, regardless of political party, narrow self-interest, or even well-intentioned actions, there are major environmental and social threats that confront America. They form the underlying causes that frame our immediate conservation problems. Three of these are climate change, species extinction, and economic inequality. There is, for example, a direct line between climate change and economic disadvantage in this country, with poorer counties and poorer neighborhoods confronting more hazardous futures than wealthy ones. Coastal cities are in the vanguard of harm. In the absence of preventative actions by 2035, near, nearly 170 coastal cities in America will reach chronic inundation, flooding on average every other week. These communities will face profound decisions and hard alternatives of defending against the sea, accommodating rising water, or retreating from flood-prone areas. For conservation to navigate these rough waters, there's a need to have both an immediate and the long view to respond to current threats and the underlying causes and to act with what we describe as strategic intention. Strategic intention is just a fancy way of saying act, but act smart. Strategic intention means that an action for conservation is not just useful in its own right. Recycling programs, protecting a wetland, electing a conservationist to city office, but is an act that leads to further advances, and we describe that important principle. Perhaps most importantly, we suggest a very different understanding of what conservation means and what it can accomplish. Our experience 
suggests that the conservation movement must greatly expand its base and we call for a unified vision that binds nature protection, historic preservation, business sustainability, public health, civil rights and social justice, and science all into common cause. This is not the siloed conservation of the recent past. Too often, portions of the conservation movement struggle amongst themselves for priority or for funding or membership or more. We quote Ben Franklin and remind conservationists they must either hang together or they will surely hang separately. We write in the book, there will be a time when the physician, the pastor, the park ranger, the business leader, the scientist, and the school teacher, all working together for conservation will seem not unusual, but expected. This is of critical strategic importance and suggests that a new and broader set of alliances for conservation will be necessary. When civil rights and social justice and nature conservation and historic preservation and health and sustainability and science join together, real progress is possible. We quote Tony Blair, where he said, outrage is easy, strategy is hard. In our book, we outline 14 specific strategies for the future of conservation. And yes, I am a professor, and no, I won't post them on a PowerPoint for us to go through. Many have been employed by conservation groups in some places at some times, but we call for them to be much more broadly and systematically applied across the country. I want to share a few of them with you. First, the creation of data havens to ensure the integrity of conservation science that even now and today is being corrupted and eroded by the administration. Improve training for scientists to be better communicators and for them to provide expert testimony in court as science for litigation becomes part of the resistance. Engaging youth in hands-on conservation experiences and national service to promote lifelong care for our heritage. Working more effectively with local residents in conservation efforts and building understanding, cooperation, and trust through true listening. Lucas St. Clair, well, let me back up. Um, how many of you have ever used Burt's Bees? Thank you for being a conservationist. Roxanne Quimby owned Burt's Bees. She sold it for a lot of money. She invested that money and bought about 100,000 acres of Maine cutover timberland and second planting timberland. For 2016, the 100th anniversary of the national parks, she wanted to give it to the American people to create a national park in Maine. The local communities were aghast they were still holding on to a forest community timber town culture, even though it was long gone. Does that sound familiar for parts of, of Idaho? And no one would listen to her because she was just saying it. 
she smartly handed it over to her young son, Lucas St. Clair. And St. Clair went on a road trip and sat down with every Kiwanis group, every chamber of commerce, every local cafe with timber owners in every little town and talked with them and listened to them and found out what they needed and tried to work it out as a principled compromise. And I believe Lucas came up with an important metric for conservationists when he said, if you want real substantial change, you got to be prepared to drink a thousand cups of coffee. <laughs> because in the absence of that, the respect of local, and I mean urban and rural, points of view, and talking with people that you don't agree with, that kind of sustained conservation can't take place. We write, there is an untapped wellspring of conservation advocacy in places like the neighborhoods of Baltimore, Louisiana parishes, New England townships, the canyon country of Utah, New York City boroughs, the ethnic enclaves of Miami and the rural counties of middle America. The durability of future conservation accomplishments will hinge on multi-generational and local support. There is an unnamed large national conservation organization that recently put out a map bragging about all their work and all the places of the United States they worked. There's an entire middle America where they ignore. They ignore. As a nation, we cannot proceed with conservation if one half of our country is ignored by the conservation movement. One of the most exciting programs I've, in education I've heard about a long time is Acadia National Park sharing marine ecology through technology with schools and young kids in Kansas, in Kansas. That's what will bind us as a country and create an American covenant binding us together. Another is to engage with respect communities of color who often have limited access to green space and rural residents who make a living from public lands because they share a common despair over access. Another, because remember, historic preservation is part of conservation, is to expand the recognition and sharing of the full American story. We write, every aspect of American history has more than one story, more than one perspective. The Americas were not discovered by Columbus as there were millions of pre-1492 inhabitants with elaborate language, art, architecture, music, religion, and trade. Westward expansion ultimately connected the West, mid-continent, and the East Coast into a continental-scale country, but decimated the existing nations of Native Americans. The Emancipation Proclamation granted freedom to four million African Americans, but they still had to fight for another hundred years to achieve legally protected civil rights. Hispanic heroes fought in the Civil War. Suffragettes chained themselves to the White House fence, and Japanese Americans fought bravely in World War II, even as their families were incarcerated in camps back home. Expanding the recognition and awareness of the full story of America is essential for two reasons, vigilance and relevancy. 
Revisionist and selective history is the tool of despots and dictators, tailored to keep them in power and their followers in allegiance. The national narrative is always evolving and its arc must bend toward a fuller truth. Sharing the entire and accurate story acts to protect and defend American ideals. Encouraging conservationists to run for elected office. I've had, and both John and I have, have had a transition after spending eight years in politics in DC. We used to think that what you do as a conservationist is you find all the candidates who are running for office, you find one that you think might be sympathetic to conservation, you help them as best you can, sort of, and then hope they do the right thing. That has not worked out. We believe it is time for the conservation movement to run conservationists for office as conservationists. In the city of Chicago, there is a small bureaucracy, the Cook County Water Management District. Sounds kind of minor, other than the fact it controls the water supply for Chicago. The county, the, the management district is an elected set of positions, always electing industry. Ten years ago, a brave conservationist ran and said, I believe conservation should be represented on the council. I'm running as a conservationist. She was elected. She is now the chair. There are three other conservationists on the district, along with some industry representatives, and management of the Chicago water supply has entered the 21st century. So we believe I, I think there should be an EMILY's list for conservation, training and preparing conservationists to run for office. And finally, most importantly, challenging older conservation veterans like ourselves to promote an intergenerational transfer of power and responsibility to emerging younger conservation leaders. It's their future at stake. We are a nation that often is led by young people. The youngest signers of the Declaration of Independence were 26 years old. John Lewis, a hero of the Civil Rights Movement, crossed the Pettus Bridge and got his head stoved in and fought for civil rights. He was 24. And the Parkland shooting survivors, the students from Parkland, are teaching us, high school kids are teaching us a moral discourse, a moral conversation, a truth that adults could not do. So we believe it's time for the baby boomers who built Earth Day, who did a lot of wonderful things, it's time for us to get out of the hall. I do not mean, I do not mean that young people should be at the table, though Secretary Jewell reminds you as conservationists, if you're not at the table, you are probably on the menu. We argue that they should take power. They're gonna manage it in new ways. They're gonna make their own mistakes. The older generation can help them, but it is time for this transfer. This is a perilous time for conservation. We titled our concluding chapter, Resilience, and we return to the theme of alarm, action, and optimism. 
And by the way, we illustrate each of our little chapters with a photograph. It is not by accident that the concluding photograph is a large American flag and a Fourth of July, because we believe the conservation movement needs to reclaim its role as patriotic activity and that the flag belongs to conservationists as much as it belongs to anybody else. We write, the forces that propelled the populist election of Donald Trump pose grave threats to the conservation of America. They challenge the reality and significance of climate change, which every major political, economic, environmental, and social decision in the decades ahead will need to consider. They rebuff the need for environmental protection, reject the scientific knowledge needed to make wise decisions, and rebuke those who would impose prudence and restraint on corporate use and misuse of precious common resources. The retrenchment and suppression of conservation at the federal level without a strategic and coordinated resistance may well set back conservation progress in the decades to ahead. Yet, we, as we have demonstrated, there are strategies and tactics that can be used to navigate these troubled times and make significant and sustained advances. We ground this belief in a firm faith of our national values, institutions, the conservation movement, the American people. There are deep American values that even now bind us together. Americans harbor a need to be respected as individuals and for their families to have futures equal to or better than the present can provide. They expect to have their lives matter, to not be forgotten or abused by their government, and to have a voice within their community and civil society. Most Americans share a deep sense of place, that the landscape they live in is an important part of their lives. Ranchers in West Texas, urbanites in West Seattle, and factory workers in West Virginia can all speak with fervent care and sometimes love for their portion of the American landscape a conservation movement that remembers these values and acts to embrace them is likely to be successful. We are taking the future of conservation in America on the road with the strategic intention of promoting a national dialogue on conservation. We're visiting university and college campuses across the country because that's where the next generation of conservation leaders is being formed. We are presenting the alarm, the strategies for action, and the optimism. We'll be listening carefully to what you have to say about conservation in the future. The dialogue that we have may be quiet and reflective or loud and raucous. Conservation matters to Americans. And I can find no better place to have that conversation than here in Boise in this special and resilient state, and with all of you. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Building a Greener Idaho. Keep the conversation going on social media and at buildingagreeneridaho.org. And join us Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Thanks for listening. <laughs>